0: That rarely happens. Well, High Disciples Church, it is, uh, it is just always so much fun uh, to get the opportunity to come here. I love you guys. You live in, in my heart. And um, Of course, I have good friends with Stu, and uh, I just look forward to every opportunity I get to, to, to be with you. I can remember the day when I lost the innocence of my youth. I was very young. I was in elementary school, kind of early grades, I think, and I can remember vividly where I was in my house and who was there at the time. I had come home from school, and I had learned a song at school from some of my friends, and it was sung to the tune of My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean. Do you know that song? The the original song has pretty simple words to it. It goes, my... Well, you can sing it with me. My body lies over the ocean. My body lies over the sea. My body lies over the ocean. Oh, bring back my body to me. There's this chorus, right? Bring back, bring back. Oh, bring back my body to me. Good harmonize. Bring back, bring back. Oh, bring back my body to me. Okay. Well, that was beautiful. Well, there was an off-color parody of the song that was going around at the time. And some friends of mine in school had learned it, and they were singing it. It had a kind of nice rhyme to it, so I learned the words, and I was excited about sharing it with my family. No, I I had absolutely no idea what the words meant. Um, If I remember correctly, I wasn't even curious about them. The words were speaking of things I had at that point in my life absolutely no knowledge about. And so it didn't even stir up in me a sense of the forbidden. I didn't know that the song was speaking of things that my parents would find uncomfortable or inappropriate. Now, I'm not going to tell you the alternative words uh, to the song for obvious reasons. I I know Stu well enough to know that he would not hesitate for a moment to (laughs) tell you the naughty words. But I'm a bit better behaved than Stu is, which would group me with just about everybody else in the world. The words really aren't that bad, uh, or naughty, actually. Just a little racy, a little bawdy, off-color bit. They just kind of celebrate the facts of life, okay? And my mom undoubtedly overreacted to it when she heard it. But I grew up in a pretty conservative, somewhat prudish home, and these kinds of things were just not talked about, let alone sung in an enthusiastic way by a little boy. At any rate, I walked in the door of my home, and my mom and older sister was there, were there. My sister was four years older than I and much wiser in the ways of the world. And I said, I learned a new song at school today, and then I started to sing it with all the gusto I could muster. And when I got to the lines that were especially interesting, I saw my sister slap her hands over her mouth and look at me wide-eyed in disbelief. And my mom literally shrieked and said, Kent, where did you learn that song? You must never, ever, ever sing that song again. Do you understand me? And I was shocked, of course, at that moment, a little embarrassed mumbled a few words of innocence, and I said something like, what? What does it mean? I don't even know what it means. And my mom said, never mind. It is a naughty song, and you are never to sing it again. Well, it's been 60 years since I sang that song in the dining room of my house in Chicago, and I remember every single word uh, today. (laughs) When I sang it, I had no idea what it meant, but I knew it must be about something really, really bad. But in that moment I remembered this intense curiosity about discovering the secret of this whole area of the universe that apparently everybody in the world knew considerably more than I did. As I said, it's been 60 years since that day and that innocence I had at that moment as that little boy has long since been lost. Just like you, my eyes have been widely open to the dark realities of this world. Not only out there, but the you know the stuff in here as well. I have seen things that I wish I've never seen, I have heard things that I wish I've never heard, I've thought things that I wish I'd never thought, and I know things that I wish I did not know any longer. And I have painfully experienced the darkness that lies in my own heart. And I find myself so often longing to live in a place of untainted purity, of unmarred innocence, of unblemished beauty. But that's not the world we live in, is it? I'm not completely sure why I wanted to share this message on innocence with you here at Disciples. I know it's not a normal or typical kind of message, and it's not a topic that I would normally present when I'm a guest speaker. I usually speak on a, on other things. But knowing Stu as well as I do, and getting to know some of your staff and your elder board and the others here, I feel this increasing uh, affinity with you all. Like a, it's like a friendship, like a home away from home. You have a very fascinating church family here. Something very beautiful and spiritually vibrant has been created here. Unless you, uh, is there something behind me? Today's program. Okay, good. I was just complimenting you. Now I'm going to take it away. Take it back. I really mean this. The world is a better place because of Disciples Church. You have helped bring the peace of God, the the shalom of God. You brought spiritual flourishing to a world that is uh, trapped in darkness. And so I thought it's kind of a pastoral uh, affirmation and encouragement to you all. It may be spiritually healthy or at least fun to spend, at least for me, spend a half hour or so together reflecting on this topic of innocence. Because it seems to me that we are living in an increasingly jaded and cynical world. Uh, There's great danger that in the process we can become increasingly jaded and cynical ourselves. And this is progressively destructive to our souls. It's very hard to live well and deeply with God and to love deeply the people of this world when cynicism and a kind of jaded loss of innocence begins to infect our inner world. Uh, I know the danger of of cynicism firsthand. It has often infected and influenced my life. Just like you, I've seen so much of the religious falsity and hypocrisy that is so prevalent in our world. And it is so distasteful to me that I have often protected myself from it and insulated myself from it with a kind of superior, elitist perspective. It's really embarrassing to say this, but with a kind of arrogance that believes that I see the world much more clearly and honestly than everybody else. But there's a cost to this cynicism, this arrogant belief that I know better than I'm in some way above such things. The cost is that I can lose my sense of wonder and childlike amazement at the glory of this world we live in. I can lose sight of what an incredibly beautiful world this is and how every square inch of it if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, is jam-packed full of God and His glory. And I often think that innocence, a recreated, reimagined innocence, what Paul Ricoeur called the second naivete, is what is needed in our day. We need the second naivete to be able to more firmly appreciate and revel in and celebrate this God-bathed world. Dallas Willard said it this way, Jesus' good news about the kingdom of God can be an effective guide for our lives only if we share his view of the world in which we live. To the eyes of Jesus, this is a God-bathed and God-permeated world. It is a world filled with a glorious reality where every component is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control, though he obviously permit some of it for good reasons, to be for a while, otherwise than as he wishes. It is a world that is increasingly beautiful and good because of God and because God is always in it. It is a world in which God is continually at play and over which he constantly rejoices. Until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and event glorious with his presence, the word of Jesus has not yet fully seized us. So here's our challenge today. How can we understand and interact with a world that is filled on the one hand with such awe-inspiring beauty and goodness, and yet on the other hand, such soul-destroying ugliness? We must ask ourselves a very crucial question. Which is the real world we live in? The world where little girls are stolen and placed in a forced prostitution. A world of crooked politicians, hypocritical... Religious leaders and greed-filled corporations—a world of hunger and violence, or a world where every square inch is filled with God and His glory, a world that is just absolutely beautiful and wonderful. Which vision of the world, this this world, is most real? Which vision of this of the world is most powerful? Which vision of this world will last forever? Is it possible to recapture innocence? Is it possible, as Ronald Rolheiser says it, to recapture the posture of a child before reality? And would this even be a good thing? What kind of person can live in a world as ugly and as brutal as ours often is, and yet still rigorously believe that it is a beautiful world and that every square inch of it is filled with God and His glory? Is such a person really seeing this world as it is, with eyes that see a greater reality, or is such a person merely whistling in the dark, kind of like an ostrich with their head in the sand. That's what I'd like us to reflect on together today. Get us started. Let's consider the beginning of innocence. When we turn to, an, if we had a long time here, I'd, we'd read this whole, uh, uh, about two one one and a half chapters here, but we don't have time. So from your memory, and I'll try to explain some of these things, when we turn to the opening chapters of the Bible, we read the account of the creation of human beings, the first man and the first first woman. The Bible says that human beings, man and woman, were created in the image of God, and they're giving the task, given the task of stewarding and caring for this good earth that God has created. And after this creation, God, as it were, stepped back and took a look at the crown of his creation, man and woman, and he said, "This is very good." The Bible says that he placed them then that God placed them then in the Garden of Eden, and in the middle of the Garden of Eden there was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God told told the man a very fascinating thing. He told the man that he could eat from every tree in the garden, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if he ate from that tree they would certainly, if they ate from that tree they would certainly die. And then as the Genesis account describes the relationship between the man and woman it says this very wonderful thing about them. It says that the man and the woman were naked and they felt no shame. Now there are countless books about the theology of all this and what it all means and There's much debate and disagreement uh, on many issues and this has been the case down through the centuries. But there are a couple things here that to me at least come across with great clarity. And first it seems obvious that the man, first man and first woman were created in innocence. Now whether this innocence refers to a positive holiness and goodness that they possessed or merely the untested absence of evil in in their lives, uh, I'm not certain. But it does seem obvious to me that the first man and woman, before they had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was a purity and an innocence in them. They were untainted with evil. Their lives were uncorrupted and pure. They lived a life in full communion with their creator, and there was no alienation, no sense of duplicity, no fragmentation of desire, no mixed motivations, They lived before the startling immediacy of reality with singular and undivided hearts. It was paradise. No good thing was held back from them. They lived with something no human being has ever truly lived with since. Satisfaction. And there is another equally remarkable truth that we see here about this first man and woman. It says the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. This is a really wonderful thing to think about. For I'm certain that it's not only their physical nakedness that is considered here, but also their complete psychological and emotional and spiritual nakedness. They lived before each other and before their creator in a posture of complete transparency. Hiding nothing. Total intimacy. And here's the kicker. They felt no shame. So let's, let's reflect on this for a moment. Um, let's think as, as honestly as we can about this. Imagine an existence where there is no pretending, no energy expended in keeping, on, keeping up the con that every single one of us is trying to pull off on the rest of the world, no pretending, no posturing, no image management, no fear of what others might think, no manipulating, no hiding, but rather an intimate openness, an immediacy, an open-handed existence, the receiving of others with grace and goodness, no worry about what others may take away from us, but simply being with each other and God and not having the slightest twinge of shame. Can you even fathom what that would be like, to live like that for just one day? Well, this is how we were created, with this kind of innocence. This is life as it was meant to be. But we all know this state of being did not last very long, and our world and all of us in it have lost this innocence. This is a fallen and broken world. So let's talk about innocence lost. The Genesis account of the loss of innocence is well known to to, to most people. The woman uh, and the man are, many people at least, uh, the woman and the man are tempted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they succumbed to this temptation. And the Bible says that after they had eaten, the eyes of both of them were opened. And notice the first thing it says after their eyes were opened, they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And right after that it says that the man and the wife heard the, the, the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So much we can explore here, but let's camp on what we've seen so far. The man and the woman have lost their innocence. They experience fear. They realize they are naked, and they feel shame and guilt, and they begin to hide not only their bodies, but their very selves from each other and from God himself. And sin and disobedience has entered this world. And our innocence has been lost and planet Earth has never been the same since. But that's the larger, more cosmic picture of the loss of innocence, of the fall of humankind, of the entrance of sin into the world. But we know this cosmic truth, this loss of innocence in a far more personal way. We've seen it in our own lives and in the lives of those we love. So we're going to talk about the loss of personal innocence. One of the most uh, most painful parts of being a parent is watching our children get older, um, and you have you have all these beautiful children run around here. It's just just such a delight, and it's it's not so much that it's that it's painful because we want to cling to them and keep them young and close to us. Although sometimes that may be the case, but it is mostly painful because we have to watch them lose their innocence, their wonder. the the amazement with which they experience this world, this fierce joy and delight. We have to watch it begin to lose that. It happens when they face rejection or uh, betrayal by a friend for the first time. When they discover that the world is not as they thought it was. When their world collapses at the divorce of their parents and everything is thrown off kilter. When they choose not to cry this one painful time, but instead decide to bury that sadness deep inside themselves, so they'll never get hurt again. When they begin to doubt themselves, when they think they are no good, when they begin to welcome and embrace shame, when the nasty and ugly realities of the world harm them, and that stuff just gets into their bodies. And we as parents mostly have to stand by and watch. My wife and I have the privilege of having a 23-year-old adopted daughter, her name is Lainey, and she came into our world when she was four months old. Those first four months of her life were very hard for her. Her older two sisters uh, were teenagers and getting ready to move on with their lives when Lainey came into our family. And it was like my wife and I had two distinct seasons of raising children. There's something kind of cool and exhausting about being an older parent <laughs> and enjoying the, the, the childhood of Laney, with the benefit of almost uh, almost about, about 15 years of parenting behind us. And we paid more attention to some things, and in some ways we had a bit more perspective. In her early years, turned, uh, before Laney turned 10, she, when she was just a child, the world was a magical place for her. And she lived those 10 years with such delight, with such joy in, in, in simple things. She would hang out her bedroom window, back then we lived out in the country a bit, and she would howl at the coyotes and try to entice them to come to our house. And she would deeply believe that maybe this time they actually would. And she would be able to raise one of those coyote pups as her own and they would do everything together and they'd be best friends. (laughs) Billy Collins uh, has written a marvelous poem about his own experience of turning 10. He writes this, the whole idea of it makes me feel like I'm coming down with something. Something worse than any stomach ache or the headaches I get from reading in bad light. A kind of measles of the spirit, a mumps of the psyche, a disfiguring chicken pox of the soul. You tell me it's too early to be looking back, but that is because you have forgotten the perfect simplicity of being one. And the beautiful complexity introduced by two that I can lie in my bed and remember every digit. At four, I was an Arabian wizard. I could make myself invisible by drinking a glass of milk a certain way. At seven, I was a soldier. At nine, a prince. But now I am mostly at the window, watching the late afternoon light. Back then, it never fell so solemnly against the side of my treehouse and my bicycle never leaned against the garage as it does today, all the dark blue speed drained out of it. This is the beginning of sadness, I say to myself, as I walk through the universe in my sneakers. It is time to say goodbye to my imaginary friends, time to turn the first big number. It seemed only yesterday I used to believe there was nothing under my skin but light. If you cut me, I could shine. But now when I fall upon the sidewalks of life, I skin my knees, I bleed. And this is the way it is in this world, with children and also with adults. The raw and stubborn existence of reality confronts us all. And we leave childhood, we're no longer 10, but we are 15 and then 20 and already compiling an impressive resume of interaction with an ugly world. And all the time as we move through our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and our 50s and on and on, we're losing our innocence. And so often along with that our ability to see every square inch of this world filled with God and His glory. And for many of us, as I said, the poison of cynicism begins to creep in. We discover that everybody's out for themselves. Everyone is playing some kind of con, working some kind of angle and nothing is really as it seems. And we protect ourselves from the harsh realities of a world filled with pretense and pretending by this tired and crusty layer of cynicism. If we stop believing there is purity, we think, if we stop believing there is goodness and startling beauty in this God bathed world, then we will not so easily be hurt by all that is impure and evil and ugly. And so we keep our distance and we throw our stones. And nothing touches us so easily anymore. And the only cause to this is that we are blinded to the reality of the kingdom of God that is more beautiful and more powerful and more real than anything else in this tired and fallen world. And then on top of all this we discover our own moral corruption as well. We come face to face with our own spiritual depravity, our own ravenous capacity for harming not only ourselves but the people we love. And we begin to see our own very personal loss of innocence. We see how divided and how fragmented and how imprisoned we are by our disordered and our unruly desires. And we long for another way of living. And this realization can be a great gift to us if it causes us to recognize our desperate need for God and His grace to rescue us. But there's a way to pursue a kind of pretend innocence. I'd like to call it blind innocence. That I think is very dangerous to our souls. Some people try to recapture innocence in a way that blinds us to the actual world in which we live. And this keeps us from loving this world that is precious to God. For some people the harsh realities of this fallen world are so horrible, so disturbing, so incomprehensible that they simply refuse any longer to live honestly in the midst of it. People with blind innocence live with a kind of Pollyanna attitude that, that everything is better than what it really is. They choose to only acknowledge the good in this world and they simply turn their eyes away from the evil. They pretend it doesn't exist. You see the real world the one in which we we, we live has lost its innocence. There's a real tragedy here, you know this. There's real hurt, real pain, real loss and we don't do ourselves or others any favor by pretending, favors by pretending otherwise. We live in a world where during the time it takes me to give this message hundreds of children will die of malaria. Children will starve to death and unspeakable things will happen to children throughout the world. That the fact that it may not happen to us or to people we know is essentially irrelevant. And it's embarrassingly self-observed to only acknowledge or be confronted by these things when we're involved. The truth is the world is an awful place at times. Because the world is fallen, it's broken, it's in trouble, it needs to be rescued, it needs to be redeemed. An innocence that ignores this aspect of our world or hides from it, that does not want to be confronted with it, is a blind and dishonest innocence. And there's another way in which we embrace blind innocence. This is when we nurture a kind of disdain for this world. We look at all the evil and the people who do in our minds evil things and we develop a form of contempt and a cold lack of love for this world. We look at the prostitute on the street corner or the drug dealer or the radical revolutionary or even someone who just holds different political or lifestyle beliefs than we do or anybody who's radically different than me. we fail to love them. In fact we nurture contempt or disdain for them and we forget that it is this broken and fallen world filled with these specific people who are precious to God. And the recapturing of our innocence will never come from pretending or from hiding, certainly not through contempt or hate, but only through loving this world and the people in it. When we treat others with contempt, when we write them off, when we look down upon them with judgment, we forget that we are made of the very same stuff. Yeah. And we are all fallen creatures who need to be redeemed. Amen. Innocence will never be recaptured by pretending or hiding or hating, but only by believing in the power of God's love to transform lives. Which moves me to my last point. Recapturing innocence. There was this one time in the ministry of Jesus, actually several times, uh, as often the case, he was being swamped by people coming to him. And this one situation with all these parents who were bringing their children to him. And they wanted Jesus to place his hand in their heads and bless them. And his disciples thought this was a bit excessive. And they tried to shoo the parents away from Jesus, but the Scripture says this in Luke 18, verses 16 and 17. But Jesus called the children to him, and said, so let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter. Now we must remember that the kingdom of God here is not referring to heaven when we die. It is referring to living in the reality of the kingdom of God now, today. And what Jesus is saying here is really obvious. Unless we can learn to approach God and this world like a little child approaches life with trust and innocence and an acute and unapologetic awareness of their need, we will never be able to live under the rule of God. For we will always want our own way, our autonomy, our independence. I love that Jesus used the example of children. here. For We we can learn much from them. Our greatest teachers, your greatest teachers in this church are all the children running around. We should watch them. We should get down on the floor with them and play with them. Listen to them. For they often know far more about the kingdom of God than we do. And what is more in so many ways, they are more like God than we are. G.K. Chesterton in his wonderful book Orthodoxy famously says it this way, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning do it again to the sun and every evening do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never got tired of making them. It may be that He has the eternal appetite of infancy. But we have sinned and grown old and our Father is younger than we. For we have sinned and grown old and our Father is younger than we. You can almost picture this world we live in as this auditorium right here. I love it. it's like darker here, so this is the world. Full the world. And when we were very small children this auditorium seems huge and full of all sorts of places to run around and explore and go back up there, there's dials you can turn and there's <laughs> lights and everything. And each new discovery tells us that this world is full of wonderful surprises. And so we live with a sense of wonder and awe and expectation. But then we get bigger and older and wiser in the ways of the world. And we've seen most of the places in this auditorium. Or at least we've seen enough places to begin to believe that there aren't really any surprises anymore. And this world really is just a big closed box. And we look at the little child who is amazed by the box and we smile at her maybe. But we know better. There is something inside us that says she'll learn. Let her live her little fantasy life now, but sooner or later she'll learn it's just a box. But what if, what if we're wrong that this auditorium is all there is? What if there is if we had the eyes to see a little corner of the auditorium, say way back up there in that corner, and then there's this small hole we got ladders and we crawled up to it and we looked through it and we would find that outside this little box of ours, is a world far more glorious, far more wonderful, much, much larger than anything we've ever imagined. And as we gazed out into this glorious world, we would become like a little child again, and we would be amazed and filled with wonder, and we would not be able to contain our joy. But we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. So here's the question. Is the box all there is, or is there more? Is there a way to live where we can capture the posture of a child before reality, where we're not just looking through some little peephole in a box, but where we pop the lid off the box and we're sticking our heads outside and we're reveling in it all, celebrating what a glorious world this is and fully alive to it. Where we begin to deeply believe that the kingdom of God is real, more real than anything else in the universe, and it is advancing and is unstoppable using Narnian terms, Aslan is on the move. And when we can live fully with this reality even in the midst of a brutal and ugly world. I truly believe we can learn to live in this way and capture our innocence. Let me close with this story. Um, A few years ago, I've had a number of these stories like this, but this is kind of the one that started it. I was uh, one of my flights around the country here, Canada, United States, and I was getting home wanting to, you know, Stu knows this all the time, you're exhausted, you want to get back home as fast as you can. And Denver is one of those hubs, so I'm at Denver. And Denver has this uh, big uh, terminal that you're walking down It and then you get to the end of the terminal, and you go down, and then there's a smaller terminal. You usually go all the way to, down to the end of that one to get to the flight that'll take you to, back to Sacramento. So I was in one of these. So you're walking down the terminal. You just see people exhausted all around you. Parents particularly are fascinating. They're they're sitting there with these kids, and the kids are rolling around, wanting a donut, this whatever. They're just upset, and the parents are looking at you, with a look like, "Do you want a kid? Because I'm very, very willing to give this kid to you." And uh, and so you're and I'm tired. You know, you're walking down. So I get down to the. You go down the stairs. Uh, or the escalator, and then it's a small, uh, then a smaller terminal. But there's this open-air bookstore there. So I said, "Okay, I got a couple-hour flight. I'm going to buy a magazine." And so, I go buy this magazine. Get in line. And I, there's four people in front of me to the to the cashier. And then I'm watching this take place, and I realize the cashier is uh, having difficulty. She has um, some. I, I I won't do a armchair diagnosis, but she has some kind of uh, disability uh, and she is having trouble uh, making change, doing everything, and, and the, it's backing up. And the people in front of me are just getting really crabby and upset. And um, talking mean to her, talking mean about her, and she's hearing all this, which causes her to shrink inside herself a little bit more, be more unable to fulfill the task she has. And um, something happened in that moment. It's not because I was a good guy and spent all day in prayer. It was just me being there and then, but the, I don't know, any other way uh, to say it other than the spirit of God came upon me. And um, I got visited by God. And I was filled in this moment with and I, just talking about it, I feel the emotion again of it, of this uncontainable love for this woman. I wanted to do anything I could do to make her life good. Um, and of course I was powerless to do that. I, I, I sensed God saying you should pray the ironic blessing over her, the Lord bless you and keep the Lord, and make his face shine upon you, that one. And uh, if he said uh, to do it out loud, i blatantly disobeyed him. But I, I, I just, so I prayed it, I prayed it anyway. And when I got to the, her... I just t- was trying to be as nice as I could, as kind, telling what a great job she was doing. I just I felt like I, I would adopt you. Let me take you home, and my wife and I will take care of you for the rest of your life. And um, I didn't say that. That would <laughs> have been really weird. But that's what I felt. But the weird thing is, whatever came on me stuck with me for a while. And as I walked away from that place, I just I, it was like I was. Um, Seeing everybody, and I felt all their stories, and I felt the sadness and the hopes and all these things. And um, my life was completely open to others. Uh, and I recognized i would not even thinking about myself at all. Um, and I remember thinking, this is this is the way life is meant to be lived. This is this is beautiful. I, I, if I you give me this way to live versus a gazillion dollars, I'll take this way to live because this feels like what we're supposed to be. And um, and so I walked down there kind of in this other, whatever I was in. And uh, sooner or later I got back there and 20 minutes later, the, you know, Krabby Kent came back and all that other stuff was gone. and um, But I think about that story and I, I realize um, that the the beauty of our existence will always be discovered in the way we give ourselves to others and see people as miracles, not as means to our end and not as obstacles that are in our way, but the this, this sacred encounters with people that we can enter into their story and what God is doing in our midst. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal Almighty, wonderful, beautiful, triune God who lived with each other in eternity past with such joy and unity and love. And out of this joy and this unity and love, you have created this world and invited us to join in this Trinitarian community and to, to be, in the words of Peter, partakers of the divine nature. And so we ask as we go about our lives, as we are out into this world, bring us deeper and deeper into experiences with you and others that free us from ourselves, that teach us to lose our lives so we can find them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.